Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Karen Martin-Stone, who's an archaeologist, performer, a documentarian and an all-round good guy. She spoke to me in Adelaide a couple of weeks ago and I haven't put this podcast out until now because I wanted to make sure she was 100% comfortable with me publishing it. In it, she talks about some heavy subject matter. If you don't like conversations of date rape, this might not be the podcast for you this week. Uh, but if that's something that you can handle, I think it's a really worthwhile discussion that we end up having. And uh, I hope that you are able to get to it. Um, thank you, everyone, who's been contributing to the Patreon. A whole bunch of you have come on board this month. It's really fantastic to be supported in that way it helps me pay for tea for the guests it helps me pay for hosting the podcast and it's helping me with some quite exciting tea with alice projects that will be coming out in the next couple of months if you want to email me alicerfraser at gmail.com if you can't support me on patreon that's all right you can you can just tell your friends about the podcast or tweet about it tweet my guests or otherwise generally feel benevolently towards me oh five star reviews on itunes also help a lot is a thing you can do if you're in Melbourne or have friends in Melbourne send them along or come along to uh, my new show in Melbourne Empire 9.30 at the Chinese Museum if you are a Patreon subscriber you get two for one tickets so don't forget to email me and let me know what night you want to come and I'll sort that out for you that's about it I think for me for this week um, thank you for listening I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it you're having tea with Alice Okay, so who are you and what are you drinking? I'm Karen Martin-Stone and I'm drinking peppermint tea. And uh, have you been wrestling with anything recently? How have you been, have been going in your brain? Uh, my brain's kind of strange, it always has been. Uh, lately it's been really busy and hard to put to sleep. Uh, and sometimes, well, you think of the weirdest things. I literally just texted my daughter and said, I wonder what, toilet, what turtle crap looks like. Um, I don't know where that thought came from. I think it's, it's white and copious. It's a bit like bird poo. Also very guano-like. Okay, that's yeah, good Yeah, I don't know, know where, why. Oh, a friend of mine was obsessed with tortoises as a kid yeah. and insisted on getting one and apparently was very disappointed because that was his experience of it. Okay, because that was actually what triggered it, I think. I saw a video on Facebook of some kid feeding tortoises and I thought, I wonder what their crap looks like. Shout out to Jamie Castell, who's currently at a University in Wales. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Teaching so poetry like oh. a jerk. <laughs> cool. So, yeah, aside from turtle crap, um, actually today I was wondering about good people that do bad things. Ah, oh, that's interesting. I have a feeling, and I don't know how I would back this up kind of um, in terms of like rigid yeah. logic. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling that you can't be a good person who does bad things for very long. I wonder about that um, because I tend to think that we like people and they become our friends and we think they're good people and then at some point in time they would do something that is so far opposed to our core beliefs that there has to be a line somewhere where you go, how on earth is that person my friend? This sounds like something that's come out of real life. It has, in a number of ways. But, I mean, it came up um, chatting with a friend about a news story this morning, but it just reminded me of so many different scenarios in my life. And I think there are a number of small compromises you make for friends or lovers um, to excuse the things that indicate potential badness, evil. I don't know. I don't. I yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean, one a good example in kind of the political sphere is how willing the left was to dismiss Obama doing drone strikes because he's yes. our kind of people. And I genuinely believe my sense of him is that he is a, a fairly decent man, but that yeah. the moment you step into that job, you are a mass murderer. Exactly. And so th his fundamental sort of day-to-day -day decency mm -hmm. is not doesn't excuse the fact that many people died at his word or at his hand. Exactly, exactly. And I think the same thing about Trump supporters um, because they think he's such a wonderful human being but he's having a significantly bad impact on, on vast numbers of people. Where's the line that you say, okay, that's too far, that's, that's too much? Well, there is, I mean, I don't know how representative, re representative it is um, of oh, fringe brain, um, but 
there's a Twitter account called Trump Regrets, yeah. which is just people tweeting like, I voted for you. Like, oh, good. Yeah, so uh, they're actually realising that he's crossed a line for them. At least some people are, yeah. So there's, yeah. there is a line for some people and yeah. he has crossed it either by being... Um, by b- backing off on things like his promise to arrest Hillary and mm. to fix everything immediately, and yeah, <laughs> and there's various things that he promised that can't be done. Yeah, in terms of that's not how the government works. Exactly. His his ludicrous surprise at how complicated the healthcare system is in America, it's you know, and the limits of his political power and all of that. It's it's sort of funny. It, it is funny, and I try to laugh at as much as I can. But sometimes you just look and you think, oh no, it's yeah. people are suffering and it's going to get a lot worse and the thing that surprises me constantly are uh, the people that voted for him saying yes repeal Obamacare not actually realising that it was the Affordable Care Act that gave them their own insurance and so suddenly they're realising that all of this is not in their best interests. Yeah that's the terrible division that America has maybe always had between rhetoric and reality yeah where the stories that they've told themselves about who they are and how they are a nation mm-hmm. ignore the real complexities of um, what was happening so if you for example if you pretend that the reason uh, slavery was abolished mm-hmm. was purely an ethical one yeah and had nothing to do with the fact that the north was more mechanized had more factories and therefore had an economic advantage over the South yeah. that they wanted to capitalise on and the South didn't want to lose their economic va- the advantage free of free labour. You know, yeah. if, you don't, if you pretend that it was just everyone realised that rights. slavery was wrong, yeah. then you make it more difficult to make a similar change in the future because mm. you pretend it's just about convincing people's morals, which it isn't, in the same way as women's rights marched in lockstep with, you know, weaving, mechanised weaving looms and washing machines and, yes. you know, all of these time-saving, labour-saving devices that gave women the luxury of uh, time to think about how badly they were being fucked over. Exactly. But again, their being fucked over was not just evil men and the patriarchy. It was that stuff needed to be done. Yes. It, yeah, it's... It's just this intractable problem, isn't it? Because people still debate. Um, I had someone say to me recently that women should never have equality because they have to have babies. And and that was such a retrograde thing. And he's like, well, who else is going to have the babies? Yeah. And, and somebody's got to take care of them. And, and I thought, well, I can see biologically, physiologically, where your argument lies. But certain, certainly once the baby's born... There's shared well, parenting. also de- defining the building of a human life, the most important resource our society has, yes. as not equal. Like yeah. uh, it's. Well, did you did you see? There's a Republican politician in the U.S. Th- uh, today arguing that men shouldn't pay for prenatal healthcare plans in the insurance system because uh-huh. <laughs> men don't have babies, or men have never <laughs> been babies. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure baby plays a, a role in everybody's life at one point. Exactly, and paying uh, for things you don't need is kind of how insurance works. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I'm not going to use that road, so I don't want my taxes going towards that road. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. An interesting. There's a, um, I always talk about her, but a really good science fiction writer called Lois McMaster Bujold, and one of the what if future technologies that ah. she posits is a uterine replicator, which okay. allows, you know, allows children to be gestated outside of a woman. Wow, that would be and cool. And the different kind of the different books deal with different worlds and the different ways in which that impacts those worlds, yeah. politically or socially or power wise. I mean, I, I always, I, I used to have a joke uh, about, um, you know, the argument that, well, women naturally want to have children and it's their natural biological urge, so they shouldn't be paid for having children. And oh I, the way I said it was like, men have natural urge to be competitive assholes. <laughs> they, they're going to fight for status and build bridges no matter what we do. So women should be paid for having children and they should give their men an allowance and the men can go off and play at business suits. Exactly, all There's that genital measuring that they do outdoors, yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous to... I think part of it is just an undervaluing of what women do. Yes. If you paid them per hour. Yeah. 
there would be a very different uh, oh, dynamic. The best tweet I saw recently was someone who said, um, don't worry about paying women the same as men. Pay men what women are currently paid and watch them get angry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome yeah. to equality. I mean, partly it's an interesting thing where the wage gap... A lot of people... Again, the left is shooting itself in the foot a bit by exaggerating the wage gap. Yeah. Women do, on, in the majority of cases, choose different careers, mm-hmm. and that might be for family reasons or inclinations or biology or sociology, industries that pay less. Yeah. But also when men go into those industries, those They're industries begin to be paid more. So a good example is computers. Yeah. Most computer technicians until a certain point were women. Mm-hmm because they were typists exactly. and that was a woman's thing, secretarial typists and yep. then when they started building computers women were doing most of the technological work and then in the 70s and 80s that flipped over and computers became a boy's yeah. thing mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden IT wages went sky high. Sky high. So that's another thing to factor in. Yeah. It's, it's both more and less complicated than the left want it to be. Yeah, true. But it's a bad tool to exaggerate your advantage because it means that you're not going to persuade your opposition. Oh, I agree. One of the things I find uh, most disheartening about public discourse at the moment is that it only really seems to be the two extreme ends of any discussion that get the airtime and so you don't allow for the complexities in the arguments and the the middle ground where people can find agreement and then move into um, persuading each other yeah better yeah yeah I think you should go into an argument thinking well what have I got wrong Mm. but then people go in because we've got a very us and them positioning at the moment yeah people go into arguments thinking if I concede they'll take advantage yes rather than we're both coming to this, we're both people and we both want to understand the world better. We want yeah. both want to know the truth. You're going, I want to win. I want to make another, fight another blow for my side. And I think that's a dangerous place it, to start. Absolutely. It's very much a battleground, I find. It's not about, you know, reaching mutual understanding and moving forward together. It's, it's very much, I want to beat you into submission. I want to convince you. I want to change your mind. Yeah, it's like... Yeah, but no one wins like that. You never get a man three punches into a fight going, oh, actually, no, you were right. <laughs> you know, like the first two uh, head blows, I was still convinced, but that last uppercut really <laughs> <laughs> made a vital point. And uh, it just doesn't, doesn't no, work like that. It doesn't. So on a more personal level, can you give me an example of where you've had somebody, good people doing bad things and Ooh. where it's switched over for you? Yeah, you can use um, an, an anonymizing pseudonyms if you like yeah okay no worries I was actually thinking of two examples this morning and one um, I wouldn't call it's very hard to anonymize my Um, (laughs) (laughs) ex-husband so hi if you're out there Um, but let's hope he's not super into podcasts well yeah let's hope the thing that I was thinking of so uh, are the small compromises you make that end to or end up in in larger compromises so i was and still am a pacifist and ended up married to an army officer that led australian troops into southern iraq oh wow and how does that happen yeah yeah and it happened through a series of very small things and then large leaps where you went oh that's okay because he's a good guy and i love him um yeah he's killing people for the right reasons or at least he believes they're the right reasons Well, not even that it wasn't even that far so um i mean i'm an archaeologist and when i met him he was an archaeologist too but he had a previous career as an army officer mm-hmm. and so uh three years into our relationship he said well i've decided to rejoin the army but I've, I've decided to stop pulling bodies out of the ground and started <laughs> putting them, in put them back in <laughs> i feel like we're running out of bodies let's well, he just said, I've decided to go back and I'll only do it if you come with me. And because I was so in love with him and thought we would get married, and uh, I just went, oh, okay, yes. And, and he said, well, I guess I better ask you to marry me then. And I'm like, oh, okay. And it just rolled along from there. And because by that stage I was in love with him as who he was and I always thought he was too smart to be in the army, um, that he'd recognised the faults of it and gotten out and, and all that. But um, the army is a culture in itself. And, and the military, I believe, actually acts like a, a, a cult psychologically. It separates you from your family and friends. It makes you all the same. It imposes a hierarchy and a belief system. It rewards certain behaviours. And I would be very interested to see that because I think, I think if the army is like a cult, it would be doing it on purpose. I've been in situations oh, yeah. with people mm. 
where it shouldn't even have been a cult, but people create it themselves. People build hierarchies and become worshipful of, of status, mm. even when the person who they are worshipping has never asked for it, Yeah, never wants it. I mean, yeah, no, I the don't. least um, loaded version of it would be in theatre sports at Sydney University. Yeah. The guy who's the host of theatre sports gets this... Um, absolute adoration. And ab- adoration and you go in and you're one of the new kids and then after a few re- years you realise that people are looking at you like mm. you're amazing. I went in for an audition for the law review. They'd, they'd refused me in first year. Wow. Hadn't even, you know, listened to me. Yeah. And then I walked in on in, what, second, third year mm-hmm. and they were like, oh, you don't even need to audition. Like... Yeah. And it I don't think I was that different a... Uh, or, yeah, it's the hierarchical structure that once you've reached a certain level, they give you certain privileges. Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. But the army would do that on purpose. There's language, there's forms, there's rituals. Yeah, it's the training process, and psychologically, they also break them down in the very brutal um, endurance kind of survivalist training that they do to see if they can handle the rigors of war. And so, when they do, um, psychologically, that operates as a reward when you survive, and uh, and so they learn to do that behavior and that style of um, existence to continue. And so they rely solely on their um, squadron or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, the psychology, the cult of the military is something that um, fascinates me from an outside perspective. And I I guess I didn't really want to go too much into my ex-husband being a a good person that did bad things or whatever. Um, It's strange, though, because me as a pacifist and an army wife, as I was at the time, when he went to war, I felt that I couldn't say what I thought about the war because that would be me being a bad wife and that my ah. first allegiance was to him as a person. Yeah. And so I didn't. I bottled it all inside. And it wasn't until years after the war, that after his involvement in the war, that I said, actually, I'm a pacifist. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And, and he went, ooh, that's a lot to think about. And, and then we didn't really discuss it. We were divorced by that stage. Mm. Um, but yeah, and he didn't talk about the things he did in war. Um, and because of his rank, he was above the hands-on, if you like, bad stuff. Um, but does that make you more or less culpable, given well, exactly, that most people's excuses are, I was I just following orders? Exactly, yes. Yeah. So I the was just giving orders. I wasn't actually killing anyone. Then where does the responsibility lie between those two? Well, yeah, that's a very blurred line and I'm not sure. Um, and so I wouldn't say that the war was the straw that broke the camel's back for our marriage. Obviously, you can't um, encapsulate the end of your marriage in a Certain sound bite. It sounds like it was some of the poison that poisoned the well, though. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. And... Um, he certainly suffered from his experience in the war as well and that's also something that I uh, see happening around us and feel quite strongly about the way Australia treats its veterans. Mm. Um, but ooh, that's a whole other story. But yeah, so getting back to... Yeah, I remember I wrote, I wrote every year on um, Beyond Blue Day mm-hmm. or Are You OK Day actually. Mm-hmm. I uh, republish a, an article that I wrote and I remember you responded to it quite strongly about these damaged... Men particularly, but yes. damaged people oh, damaged women too, who yeah. put a positive obligation on their partners and friends to look after them. Yes. Because we don't treat people with mental illness well enough. Exactly. And the reality of, of the situation is you can't save someone else. You can't. No. You, and if you can even help them, it mm. comes at a great cost. Oh, absolutely, it does. And we and don't I'd talk about that, that very much. No. Are you okay? I find offensive because it trivialises that process. Oh, exactly. Are you okay? Is you a have to good be ready start. to hear the answer. Well, true. And are you capable of assisting? Um, and so, that that was a huge, you know, more than the war. The aftermath of the war was um, what ended up destroying our marriage, and so. Uh, he came back with post-traumatic stress disorder, as many um, soldiers do. And the systems just weren't in place to deal with that. The army doesn't treat it well. I remember, because at first he was in denial and trying to cope and not coping. And uh, he had a mate, same rank as him, who came back from Afghanistan. And we invited him around for dinner. And um, I thought, well, this will be a chance for my husband to talk to his mate. 
about how he's feeling. And so to kick the conversation off, I asked his mate, were many people in his um, unit coming down with post-traumatic stress disorder? And he said, oh, it's only weak pricks that come down with that. And so Gary just shut down. That's an interesting, interesting, interesting one. I, uh, I mean, not, not to make a direct analogy between war and law firms, mm. <laughs> but, but do it anyway. <laughs> do it anyway. It was that. It was one of the one of the. Even though being a young graduate lawyer is a deeply unpleasant job. Yes. It's all it's all future reward for exactly. current payment. Yes. Um, just the subtle signals that you're given at all times are is that when people leave Mm -hmm. it's not because they've figured out it's a a rot or because they found something that suits them better Mm. even though sometimes people say those things on the surface there's always an underlying well they couldn't hack it could they well exactly and And that's the way these cults reinforce themselves of like you didn't leave because you found another way. You didn't leave because you found something that suited you better. You didn't leave because you were disillusioned hmm. and therefore might have some justifiable criticisms. You yeah. left because you weren't failed. strong enough. Yeah. You, you know, and you were wrong or you were weak or something took you away, something evil. Yeah, well, there has definitely been that sense of it coming through in the military. And so uh, my husband uh, was diagnosed in 2006 and for a while struggled on at work and then took long service leave at half pay and decided to get out of the army. Now, um, the way the army and the Department of Veterans Affairs work to assist people with um, service-related trauma is not very well coordinated, or wasn't at the time, and I see it's in the news again now and I'm trying not to pay attention. Um, At the time, when you get out of the army, you are no longer entitled to army support. But the Department of Veterans Affairs won't help you until they've accepted liability on the basis of your war service. And there's a process by which they need to go through to accept liability. First stage, get your medical records, review them, and then a whole other process. So when Gary got out of the army, he started going through that process. And it took the army seven months to take his medical record out of storage. It, had, it took me putting the minister on the spot saying, you are not doing this well enough for it to happen. And then it took another two years or more than two years for the Department of Veterans Affairs to accept liability. And at that point, they give us a needs assessment and then I'll, I'll give Gary a needs assessment on what services they can provide for him. And then on it goes. Now, that two and a half or more, three years while you're in the process of being very ill and unable to... Yeah, that to can be the difference between life and death for some well, absolutely. people. Absolutely. He he'd, he'd left his job and effectively took a $60,000 pay cut to find work that he could cope with, which essentially involved living in a tent in Arnhem Land for two years because he couldn't cope with society. And so um, what happens in that, in that vacuum is that I fill the space of caring Mm. And, and he continues to run away because he doesn't know how to, how to deal with it. Yes, um, and that's not caring that you are paid for. Oh, exactly, yeah. And so um, in the end, our marriage broke down and I think two days afterwards, the Department of Veterans Affairs accepted liability. And because part of post-traumatic stress disorder is the inability to deal with conflict, I said, would you like me to come with you for your needs assessment so I can advocate on your behalf? Because I'd been dealing with the whole bureaucratic process because he couldn't. Um, and he said no, because of course he thought, you're just after the money to get in divorce. <laughs> so, so I didn't. So he went to this meeting and all they gave him was coverage of his medical expenses from that day forward. But under the Act, he was actually entitled to medical expenses already incurred, lost wages, past and present and future, um, uh, compensation for permanent incapacity and, and other things. And so they didn't do it. And I ended up sharing a cab with a DVA executive from Canberra Airport into the city and I put her on the spot and I said, I know that you're not giving our veterans what they're entitled to under the Military Compensation Rehabilitation Act. Why? And she said, well, the government's policy is that because World War II veterans are dying, there are fewer of them needing our help, so the funding is drying up. So they were doing more with less. um, Because, of course, at that stage, 10% of the units coming back on each rotation were getting out with PTSD on their arrival home and more and more over time when they reached the point where they couldn't cope. 
And you get to the point where most, if not all, combat veterans from the Vietnam War have PTSD. Mm. And we're repeating all of those mistakes and just not caring for our veterans. Well, part, I mean, this is the thing, I think, with PTSD. It's a complicated disease and it is compounded by things like... Social isolation. Social isolation. (laughs) And the sense that you're not valued or that people don't understand what you went through and that they could never understand what you went through. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's incredibly difficult and I feel quite strongly about it. And, And that as an issue and as a nation, I mean, I have huge issues with the glorification of war and um, our national identity being tied up with that in all that propaganda. Um, that's me, the pacifist, coming back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have a friend who spent some time in uh, some war zones, not mm. as a fighter, but came back. And and it's, it's this thing where, you know, whenever we saw like a movie with certain subject matter mm-hmm. or heard particular noises, yeah. he'd just be a cunt for the rest of the day. Wow. And... And yet, when we were having a discussion about triggering, yep. he's like, oh, you know, lefty triggering, da 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 Wow. Like, and I, Did you say something? Yeah, I mentioned Good. that, like, th- the level of reaction that he had to certain things. And he's like, yeah, but that's just, like, a mechanical thing. That's just, like, a biological well, response. Well, so is. Yeah. Go, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. That's what it is. Yeah. It, it's, it's a biological defense mechanism response. You, mm-hmm. got, you got taught very physically that this was a threat to your life yeah. and so now when things remind you of it your body goes into fight or flight mode well exactly like it's very I, I had a it's um, very uncontrollable physical. and physical it is i had an experience recently and i've only just started talking about it in public so i guess this counts um i was date raped five years ago and never told, never reported, just got on with life for a number of reasons. Um, And then recently I was scrolling through Facebook over breakfast and my rapist turned up in people you might know on Facebook. Oh. And I cried so hard I threw up. Yeah. And then somehow I had to pull myself together and go and write comedy in an office all day. And I did. Yeah. And, you know, that triggering of trauma is full on. It, it's completely uncontrollable. You, yeah, it's you, not a weakness. It's a it's a reaction like someone hitting your knee and your knee kicking out. It's not exactly. something that. I mean, it's a very it's a very difficult and interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of the reasons why you didn't report? Ah, oh, lots of. Um, you can, and again, you can anonymize or whatever whatever yeah, makes you feel no, comfortable. Okay. It's, it's an interesting thing because I am. You know, an ardent feminist and very outspoken and um, do everything I can. So I feel like I have an obligation to report so that he doesn't have the chance to do that to someone else. Yeah, and so if someone else comes in with a report, you don't get that, oh, well, he seems to be an upstanding member of the community sort of response. Yeah, yeah. And so for me it was the fact that... um, It's really strange. In the initial experiencing of it, to myself I didn't use the term rape. I was very traumatised and upset by it and I spoke to friends saying he did this thing Mm. Um, and one of my friends went oh I'm really sorry to hear that you were raped and I went ooh and then I thought well absolutely if if one of my friends was telling me this that's how I would think of it but I just I was so caught up in the visceral experience of it that I couldn't put it into words yeah and um well, I think we the way that we think of rape or the way we talk about rape is very much as a, as a monolith. Mm. I think we need more words to describe what happens, the difference yeah. between the man jumping out with a knife in a park and... Oh, absolutely, because mine was date rape. And mm. so you could say, oh, well, it wasn't as bad as one of those others. Um, but trauma is not relative. The way your mind and your body experience trauma is it's trauma. It doesn't matter what it is that's caused it. Yes. Your body reacts according to traumatic processes. Yes. If, you're, if you get chopped off at the knee by a violent criminal or by an accidental tripping between a train and a platform, you still don't have a leg below the knee. Exactly. And pain is pain. You know, yeah. that trauma pain is, is the same. And so, and I, I think it's kind of a bit grotesque to get a bit competitive about my trauma was bigger than yours. Yeah. Um, and so... Well, I spoke to Winnie M. Lee, who was the victim of a violent rape in a park in broad daylight. Wow. And she's written a book about it. She's an amazing... It's back in the history of the podcast. Mm-hmm. And she was saying she felt quite privileged 
in the hierarchy of rape survivors because no one questioned her. Yeah. And she didn't have to be like, oh, my she didn't have to brother or herself. my father or my boyfriend or yeah. this person I love or care about. She had this very clean, this guy was a villain. Yeah. I wasn't asking for it. I was, yeah. you know, all well, of that stuff. In my case, it was date rape and we were on a date where... Um, we decided to go home together and he didn't have condoms but I did. We used all the condoms I had. He wanted to go again and I said no and very clearly we actually argued over it. I said no for all of these reasons. Um, And he said, well, I think you're stupid. And I said, well, I still have the right to say no uh, and this is how it's going to be. And we went to sleep and I woke up with him raping me and he, he didn't stop. And that's horrifying. I'm really sorry. Um, you shut down when you can't stop it. You just do what you need to 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 survive. Yeah. And so then I just got out of there. And um, I don't. Well, at the end of it, he said to me, "Oh, baby, you're so fine. I couldn't help myself." Uh, like it was my oh. fault. I know. How sick is that? It's like, hey, stopping <laughs> such a fucking stereotype of a douchebag. Like, oh. at least be original. Totally. But now I don't know. Does he know that that was rape? Does he should he, know. Does he care? You yeah. know? Has he done it to other women? And um, all I needed at the time was just to get out of there I just needed to put as much space between me and him as I could he tried to call me a week later and and I didn't answer and I didn't respond uh, Mm. and it was all oh hey when am I going to see you again um and I don't think he gets it yeah and so that was just um you know incredibly traumatic and confusing and and I had work to do I had an interesting life I had lots going on and I didn't it's want much easier to do what you can do than deal with something that is really impossible to deal with oh exactly so I just got on with life and I thought about I often thought about reporting it and and then I was so aware of date rape cases through the courts there was one in Darwin which is where I'm based um, where a woman had been date raped and uh, what had happened was she was dropping the guy home and he said, oh, but I've got these photos I want to show you, so just come inside. And she said, well, if I come inside, I'm not having sex with you. And he said, that's fine, just come in and I'll show you the photos. And they went inside and he said, I'll come into the bedroom, they're in there. And she said, no, bring them out to the lounge room. He's like, no, no, don't be silly, come into the bedroom. And when she went into the bedroom, he pinned her down and raped her. And when that went through the court, and she actually recorded him on the phone, and she said, "You, you did this, and you, you know, you know right. it was rape." Yeah. And and he said, "Well, yes." Um, and that phone call was submitted to the court as well. And the judge, in the end, ruled. And I don't know um, what the situation was with jury, but they said that he was not guilty because she should have known that if she went into the bedroom, sex was going to happen. And one That's of my insane. friends was a bailiff in the courts there, and he said to me, don't report it, uh, don't press charges because the way that rape victims are treated in, through the court system is too traumatic. It compiles, you know, trauma upon trauma See, upon trauma. I find trauma. that really troubling. I don't like that at all. I mean... No, neither do I. There's two things. One is you're still within the statute of limitations and if, yeah. it depends which state it happened in, but some have anonymous reporting. Yeah. But even if it's just so you can feel like you've done something. Well, sometimes that's just what I want to do. I would like to go and talk to the police and just say, this is the guy and this is what he did. Yeah. And even just so if it you can't know. be prosecuted, I want you to know. Yeah. yeah. I think because I don't be. want a court case to define yeah. my life. Yeah. You know? um, so, yeah. Um, now, I, I am in no way saying that he is a good person that did bad things. I, I think he's probably a pretty bad person all around. Yes. Um... But yeah, wow, I didn't expect to go there today. I'm sorry. No, that's cool. When I was thinking about good people that do bad things, um, I was specifically thinking about a friend of mine who is a guy that I've worked with Mm. and we've become friends through working together and um, he's an Indigenous man lives in a remote community and we work every year on a project together and then don't see each other for months. Mm. Um, and we have great conversations and part of my 
One of the joys of working in Indigenous communities is uh, learning about their culture and their lives and how they differ to mine. And, and I often talk to the men that I work with about the lives of their wives and, and mothers and sisters and the women in their community. And um, we have some really fascinating conversations because, I mean, part of many Indigenous cultures in Australia is to answer questions in the way you think the person asking, you know, tell them what they want to hear. And so uh, when you're talking to people, you've got to be very conscious of that, not to lead the conversation. Um, but of course, when I say, what's life like for your wife? They've never considered that question through a white woman's eyes. And so um, we, we talk it all out and we have really interesting conversations around all sorts of things. Um, and it's, you know, women's issues and alcohol and violence and, and things that are, uh, that make the news from these communities, as well as all the other things that don't make the news. And the thing that I found really difficult, uh, well, this friend of mine has been in jail a couple of times um, in the period that I've known him and I've visited him in, him in jail. And uh, then the last time he went to jail was for stabbing his wife. And I didn't visit him and I haven't spoken to him since. Yeah. And so... And it's interesting because we used to have such amazing conversations about... Um, feminism and women's rights and, and the lives of indigenous women and, and you know gender relations in indigenous cultures and the strength of women and all sorts of things and, and women in indigenous communities um, have even less opportunities for work than the men and, and they um, suffer I think a greater deal of oppression than the men do which is already quite significant so yeah I think it's an interesting again a problem with the left at the moment is that in response to uh, historical and right-wing stereotypes about Aboriginal people, they mm. will shut their eyes to real abuses that are being perpetrated and real problems that exist in at least some of those cultures. Yeah. I mean, if you consider that it's not... A, Aboriginal culture is not a monoculture. No. But that, that this exists as a real problem, but that people are not really willing to address it because cultural relativism, because we tried imposing our culture on them and it didn't work, because... All of those things where I think there is room, even if you acknowledge that it's a subjective opinion yeah. and coloured by your own culture, yeah. there is room for me to go, oh, no, I think the way we do things is better. Well, it, it's really interesting. I thought that by having these conversations and, and opening up opportunities to women as well as men through the work that I do, uh, I thought that I was making a difference and, and helping people to think about the way uh, their lives play out and the way they interact with each other and things like that. And so that may be absolute arrogance on my part to think I could make any difference whatsoever. But when he stabbed his wife, I just felt as if um, there was nothing I could do to stop that and I kind of wish that I could I mean you don't know maybe you did prevent it another you maybe you prevented him from shooting his wife or stabbing her three years beforehand or mm. you can't you can't know the yeah. things that you prevented you can no, only I guess know so. the things you pre you failed to prevent yeah and you know maybe he for what it's worth he feels more guilty now <laughs> or well uh, that's the thing because um previously when i visited him in jail and uh the first time he was in was for assault and uh that was a really interesting thing it's a cultural story he and his wife were wrong way married mm -hmm. um and do you want to lay that out for the listener what that means um it means that within the aboriginal kinship system in the northern half of the northern territory there are certain um groups that can't marry each other and so they were married wrong way yeah, across like a caste system sort of more yeah, or less, it's close it's enough moiety and skin name yeah mm -hmm. and so they they married wrong skin and so her family had issue with that and his family had issue with that. And also in Indigenous communities, there's often um, ritualised violence in terms of uh, they will arrange fights to settle disputes and it'll be two o'clock on a Tuesday and everyone will come down to watch. Um, and so my friend was asked by his brother to come down to assist with a dispute settlement on his nephew. And he said, sure, yeah, I'll come along and help. But it was actually a trap for my friend because the violence was against him and so that was how they got him there. Now I heard that story from both himself and his brother so I assume that it's as correct as I'll ever know. Um, and so when he turned up they turned on him and they beat him 
and he, you know, broke his arm and a few other things and he fought back as best he could. Now, he was arrested and charged with assault and landed in jail and um, they said that the police theory in that sort of scenario is that he was the troublemaker, that if he wasn't present, that wouldn't have happened. Um, ah. So, again, so, so I felt well, victim also, blaming. Well, also, for whatever reason, he was being beaten up. Maybe they missed whatever that was and so he deserves some sort of punishment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so they saw, well, you know, also there's isolated police resources in these remote communities and how do you arrest and jail ten people when, it, when you could just take one and solve the problem and there would be no more violence afterwards for yeah. however, many, however long. Anyway. So he ended up in jail and I felt sorry for him as being a victim in that circumstance. Um, the second time he was in jail, he had assaulted his wife. And, and, that w- and so this is what I'm saying about the small little increments. So and the so first time you're like, oh, I understand, you're the victim, you deserve my sympathy and yeah. we've had these great conversations and you're a reasonable, lovely human being as far as I exactly, know you. Exactly, yeah. And of course, and when I'd visit him in jail, we'd talk about how he wanted life to be on the outside. And even before he went to prison for years, he was telling me that he wanted to live a life, um, a sober life, not drinking. He wanted to work, he wanted to play in this football team that uh, does representative football and um, he umpired, he volunteered, he does all these things um, and he, he struggles with alcohol and also in, within the community alcohol is quite pushed on people people that choose not to drink are seen to be judging others that do and so there it's I mean even that, that's even in the white community oh, as someone who doesn't drink it, yeah because yeah. I don't drink very much at all and I've certainly felt found people become quite offended if I'm not going to drink with them I'm mm. like hey I'm happy with water no no you must drink uh, and so in, in these communities, I think, and because family is such the, the core part of their cultural value that if you lose family, you have no identity. There's such an enormous amount of pressure to conform to uh, family and social expectations. And so, um, yeah, I certainly, you know, I, I have this idea of him as a, a really good guy trying his hardest in really difficult socioeconomic circumstances and cultural circumstances and, you know, remote isolation and, and all of that. Yeah, I agree. There's an interesting problem there about responsibility Mm. in terms of, you know, you feed certain things into a human machine and it will respond in certain ways. We are none of us better than that. If you think you're better than responding to your circumstances, try not looking at your phone when it gives you a notification. Yeah. And then think about how you deal if the whole world is pushing you towards certain responses. Exactly, yeah. And, and, I mean, we know that, um, you know, there's higher rates of um, alcohol addiction in people with, in the lower socioeconomic brackets that these... Uh, and, you know, that... But uh, equally, there is a bright line in the sand. Mm. And that, I think, is violence. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. That, um, perpetrators choose violence. And I'll absolutely say, you know, that... Um, short skirts don't cause rape, rapists cause rape. So, yes. you know, the person that chooses to enact the violence has taken the responsibility to do that. Yeah. Um, so that's where the responsibility lies. And it's also the responsibility of a potential perpetrator, somebody who is exactly. aware of these inputs. And as you say, you had these long conversations to start limiting yeah. the inputs. If you're an alcoholic, mm-hmm. the first thing you do is you get rid of all the alcohol in your house. If yeah. you're a sugar addict, you mm. know, I gave up sugar for FebFast. Like, yeah first thing to do is get rid of all of the junk food in your house yeah. so that you're not tempted because you're not better than exactly. the moment yeah. where you're at your weakest. Yeah, I think there are a whole heap of uh, cultural issues that come into play uh, for Aboriginal people living in remote communities because everything is so tied up with connections to people and the importance of that. Um, yeah, you're not going to want to offend someone by refusing something because you're so interdependent as human beings. Yeah. Yeah, and so it is, it's really hard. So the second time that he was in jail, it was for assaulting his wife. And we had very long conversations about um, how, why. And, I mean, for me, I've never understood violence. I don't know how you can take your fist and and put it into someone's face. Uh, Mm. I I don't understand the decision-making process. I don't understand the physical experience of that. I don't understand the... Um, personal justifications before and after um, I, and so these were things that he struggled to talk about but that he he appreciated actually um, doing so in, in, a, in a strange way you know I, I never wanted to make him feel uncomfortable but I just say look I, I just don't understand I want to understand 
what life is like for you and I want to understand what life is like for your wife and, and I want to understand is this what you both want? Um, yeah. or, Without or being like I'm holding you accountable for things, no. just genuinely yeah. if you want to, please I want, tell well, me. Yeah. And, and so it was great because um, most of the time that we spend together is out bush doing work where we're walking across the countryside and it's his country and I've actually I've got this sort of um, photographic project I'm just doing for myself really where uh, and I don't do the town-based stuff but just observations of indigenous men in different environments and I find that when because uh, in in Darwin people that are homeless are often called long grasses they live in the long grass um, and so I watch long grass men um, in their interactions in Darwin and their, their whole body language is um, curled over and um, full of um, I'm going to say shame but it's the wrong word it's the word that a lot of indigenous people use like shame job for uh, whatever and so culturally it is entirely appropriate for them to ask for whatever they need and culturally it's appropriate for westerners to say no but when these meet in the situation of homelessness in Darwin, you often get a lot of conflict where a lot of Westerners feel very um, antagonised by people constantly asking for bus fare or cigarettes or, or whatever. Um, and often the long grasses have been um, offensively rejected so many times that they get angry um, at being treated so poorly. And mm. so there is you know, understandable conflict. And often it actually works really well for people that understand the human side of it where they just say well it's it's entirely appropriate for them to ask and it's entirely appropriate for me to say no so we just say sorry mate i can't today um you know but have you tried this service that can help you yeah. and so uh so I, I watch people sometimes and and indigenous men in the long grass um when they're in that situation and they have to ask for help, it's, it's not an easy thing to do and so they, they curl in on themselves. And then when you see them in their remote communities, um, they're much more open and, and strong and, and it's amazing to see uh, the men with the children especially. So the dads are very hands-on and I mean I've been really lucky to be invited to Father's Day gatherings of fathers and children and um, even without that like you'll be driving down the, the road in the middle of the community and kids will see a, a, a dad they know or an uncle and, and they'll, they'll just like arms open and run and jump for a kiss and, mm. and it's a beautiful thing that we don't see in our um, in it's not Western that, communities. That angle of that community is not open to us. Yeah, exactly. And so their body language in these communities is very um, strong and um, relaxed and comfortable and kind of at home. But the real beauty of the body language that I like to observe is in um, out bush on country, when it's their land and their, their sacred spaces, um, just the way the men walk is so much more uplifted and so natural and languid sort of flowing movements it, it's a beautiful thing i don't think i've ever recognized that kind of peacefulness mm. in australian men in general in their day-to-day -day life um and and it's a really wonderful thing. And so, you know, I've had all of these experiences with my friend who um, ended up in jail and ended up stabbing his wife. And so it's out when we're having these long, day-long walks across his country where he'll, he'll teach me about his land and his culture and, and everything. And, and we'll Yeah, it's very hard not to forgive someone who you've seen the beauty in. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I think he's a great guy, but he stabbed his wife. Yeah. And that's the and hard I, line, right? I can't reconcile that. Yeah. I mean, where, where do you draw the line? And, and how do you draw the line? Do you say, well, I, I'm no longer your friend, I'm no longer going to work with you, or, or what do you do? Um, I don't know what the right answer is, really. Neither do I yet. But you have a little while. How long will he be in jail for? <laughs> <laughs> He's out of jail now. Uh, oh. We're not scheduled to work together for a few months. So you've got that time to figure it out. Yeah, but normally when he gets out of jail, we touch base and catch up for lunch and, you know... Mm do stuff hang out go to comedy shows yeah yeah you? Um, let me know let me know when you've made a decision and we'll have another podcast about it yeah yeah i will That's you are the busiest person i know <laughs> i just chased the post i'm very glad that you had time to catch up with me for tea so am i this was awesome we'll do it again yes please Thanks, you're alice. having tea with alice
This stuff is mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doffers hide every frame. Lousy rifle, doll, lousy rifle day. On Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you, doffers, cry up your hands. Lousy rifle, doll, lousy rifle day. And when the boss, he looks round the door, tie our ends up, doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lousy rifle, doll, lousy rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lousy rifle, doll, lousy rifle.